Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. Well, if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of 1 Kings. The book of 1 Kings and chapter number 9. The book of 1 Kings and chapter number 9. We're continuing with our series of the life and ministry of Solomon. And we're watching as King Solomon has firmly established himself as king. He is now taken some time to worship the Lord, and God has granted him much wisdom. He has shared his wisdom through writing many proverbs and songs and giving some teaching. And now we concentrate on another area that Solomon was known for. If Solomon was known for two major things, it would be his wisdom and the second thing would be his building projects. And so if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the word of God and turn with me to the book of first Kings chapter nine, the book of first Kings in chapter number nine. And if you don't mind, let's look together starting at verse number 15, the book of first Kings chapter nine and verse 15, the word of God says this, and this is the reason of the living, <laughs> which Solomon which King Solomon raised for to build the house of the Lord and his own house and Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazar and Megiddo and Gezar. For Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezar and burnt it with fire and slain the Canaanites that dwelt in the city and given it to for a present unto his daughter Solomon, or his daughter Solomon's wife. And Solomon built Gezar, and Bethoran the nether, and Baalith, and Tadmor in the wilderness in the land. And all the cities of store that Solomon had, and the cities for his chariots, and cities for his horsemen, and that which Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, and in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of First Kings in chapter number 9? The book of First Kings chapter 19, or 9, in verse number 19, notice the phrase, Solomon desired to build. Solomon desired to build. And with this, we want to explore some of Solomon's building projects. Solomon desired to build. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we examine this portion of scripture, that we would understand the history, the principles behind the history, and that we'd be able to have an application with our own life. We thank you for whom you are, and we're just asking that you would draw us close to you. Once again, I'm conscious that I need you in a very special way, Lord, that you'd be with my mind, my thoughts, my heart, my desires, that they would be pleasing to you and that you would get glory and honor out of all of this. Lord, set this in order and glorify your own name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you don't mind, before we even start, we need to lay down a foundation that as we talk about civilization, we understand that in order for civilization to grow and to thrive, there are going to be several necessary elements that are needed to make sure that um, civilization can grow. You know, <clears throat> 
for a most people in the ancient world, they weren't worrying about building empires. They weren't worried about building cities. They weren't worried about building palaces. They were worried about surviving from day to day. And as long as people are just in survival mode, they're not going to be able to build up within their own life. So what are some of the elements that are needed for a civilization to be able to grow and prosper? Well, history teaches us that there are certain levels that must be obtained in order for civilization to grow and prosper. The very first level is that a steady source of food must be available. As long as people are living hand to mouth, they're not going to be able to thrive. They're not going to be able to get out of this survival mode. They don't care about art. They don't care about uh, building other things. They're just worried about where's the next meal coming from. So if a civilization is going to serve, uh, to go past survival mode, they first of all have to have a steady uh, source of food that is readily available, that they'll be able to take care of it and be able to have enough so they don't have to have everybody working in the fields. They need to make sure that they have enough so those who are not working in the fields have enough to eat so they can concentrate on other endeavors. The second level for a civilization to develop are laws. A civilization must be an organization of laws and rules. Laws are a set of rules that a group of people agree to obey. As long as a society is lawless, there's no way that they're going to be able to grow or thrive, that people need rules, order, and authority in their life. A lawless society will not develop well culturally, as survival will be the forefront. For that society to thrive, it has to have order and structure. The third level is peace from wars from outside sources. That as long as you're going to be attacked by the enemy, you can't build uh, bigger and better and beautiful. You are just building to survive and to repair the breaches. When there is peace, attention then can be turned to the artisans to allow them to do their part. A society that has lots of artists presumably is a society that has peace within from without. Buildings are then created and the arts flourish as long as there's a peace maintained. But if there is no peace, there's no artist, no building, no thriving, no building of the cultures. They're just in survival mode. So again, we're going to see this throughout Solomon's reign. Why was it that Solomon was able to build these great buildings? What was the environment up? Well, he didn't have to fight all these outside wars. Why could Solomon build these things? Because he was able to have a maintained food source for all the people that go beyond just those working in the field that would allow everyone else to thrive. And then they were a, an organization, a kingdom that had order and structure. And as long as that order and structure was there, it allowed that society to thrive. Because God gave rest to Israel in the wars during this time, it allowed Solomon to concentrate on building projects to improve the kingdom he had. This prosperity allowed the influence of a nation to expand and grow. We know that when artisans and the society becomes culturally uh, thriving, it has an influence on outside sources. 
So let's cover this. First of all, Solomon spent time building defenses to make sure his kingdom would be able to have peace from those without. The Bible talks about these defenses. A prominent feature of Solomon's rule was this development of extensive defenses. This was in keeping in the general interest in maintaining the present boundaries of his country rather than expounding them. Solomon was not a conqueror. He was not off trying to subjugate other kingdoms. What he did do was try to make sure the kingdom he did have was going to be able to have peace. And he went and built these uh, defensive structures to make sure that the enemies could not attack from without. His major defensive measure was the fortifications of key cities that ringed Israel's heartland. Here's an example of some of these cities. You had Hazar to the extreme north. So if you're going to look at a map, here would be Hazar. This is one of those defensive cities to the north of Israel or northern part of Israel. This would help protect the borders. Then you had Megiddo, which is at the strategic north-south pass into the uh, Estradland Valley. By the way, this same valley of Megiddo is going to be very important in the future. You would often hear it called the Valley of Armageddon. So this is a very important valley that's going to show up later on. But Solomon went and defended this pass that you would find in Megiddo. Then he went Gizar, which we spent some time reading about this here. Gizar, which is found here that Pharaoh had taken the city, burnt it from the Canaanites, kicked them out, then gave it to Solomon as a present. Then you had Beth Horan. Beth Horan would also still be in the southern area to be able to give the southern defenses. And then you have Baal Elith which guarded the western approaches from the Philistine territory. So this again was another fortification to keep the Philistines from attacking this nation. Now, Tadamor is identified with a city called Palarea, a famous trading center about 175 miles to the northeast of Damascus, which is in Syria. It may have been an outer command point to give an early warning of enemy movement from the northeast. So this would be very far to the north beyond the um, actual borders of Israel. But this would say if any enemies are starting to come from the south or from the north coming south, they would have an early warning system to be able to protect the kingdom. Now Solomon also built defenses inside of Jerusalem. Solomon built the wall and the supporting Milo, which is the supporting walls for added strength. So this would be a picture of ancient uh, uh, Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem's built on hills. What they would do is build this big wall around the hills. So that way, not only did they have the invaders have to climb over the wall, they'd have to climb up the hill to get to the wall. This defensive structure was called the Milo. And then Solomon went ahead and fortified the rest of the walls. Another significant defensive feature was Solomon's use of the chariot, which was very different from David's stance. Now, the chariot is only really useful in flat ground. It loses its effectiveness when you get to rocky or hilly ground. Well, Solomon was the first king of Israel to really start employing the use of a chariot. The Canaanites had used this tool for many, many years. Solomon had adopted this technology and started making it part of his regular army. 
Now, to staff all the cities with adequate military personnel, Solomon had to keep a large standing army, which once again is a significant feature to be able to have a large standing army to protect them. If you're going to have a big uh, standing army, you have to pay them and you have to feed them. Well, that means that food is under control to be able to feed that many people in the service of Solomon. In addition to the defensive measures, Solomon also built buildings. Here are some of the buildings that he built. The most significant, of course, would be the building of the temple, the temple that was dedicated to God, where people could come and worship and observe the sacrifices. Another building that Solomon built was his personal palace. It was probably a very elegant structure. It took 13 years to build, three years longer than it did to build the temple. Solomon spent a long time building this palace. The Bible speaks about another place was the palace of the forest of Lebanon. And it was named this way because it was supported by rows and rows of cedar pillars. It was used to store arms. So this is where they would keep the armory, where they would keep all the other defensive measures for the troops. Another building was the Hall of Pillars, or known as the Porch of Pillars. Perhaps a splendid passage building lined with pillars. It would look something like this, a very significant artisan structure, but it would be allow a pass from several of these buildings that, that Solomon built and be able to have protect it, but it would also look good to the rest of the city as well. Another building was the Hall of Justice, sometimes in the Bible called the Porch of the Throne. The Porch of the Throne. This structure was used for judgment. This is where Solomon would actually sit and go ahead and give judgment. We're going to cover a message on Sunday about the Queen of Sheba. The Queen of Sheba would approach Solomon here upon this hall of justice where his throne would be at. Solomon had sat on a six-step throne of ivory that was overlaid with gold. So if you could imagine there's a throne and this throne is on top of a huge platform that had six steps, wide steps, leading up to it. This step was made out of ivory. If you're not familiar where ivory comes from, it comes from the tusk of animals. It's bone, namely specifically elephants. They would use their tusk. So this was an ivory porch, that step throne that was built, and then it was overlaid with pure gold. Solomon's palace was joined to the Hall of Justice, so that way he had ease of access. He could walk back and forth and uh, not have to travel all around the town, the city. The last building was the house made for his honored wife, the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, why is this a big deal? Traditionally, the Egyptians saw themselves better than any other people group. The Egyptians always had it in their mind. They were the ultimate people. Everyone else was lesser. Now, because of this, it played a part inside of the Egyptian politics. The pharaohs were considered gods. So they needed to be very careful with who they mingled with and who they allowed to mingle with. Most of the time, their daughters were not allowed to marry outsiders. We don't give our daughters the outside. We take your daughters to be a part of it. Other nations would give their daughters to marry Pharaoh's family with the idea that there would be peace and that uh, there would be a structure because they're now family. For a Pharaoh of Egypt to allow a daughter to marry an outsider shows the great 
influence Solomon now had in this reign. The Pharaoh recognized that Solomon was almost his equal. That's what would have been required for a Pharaoh to give his daughter to an outside to be married. Now, because technically the Pharaoh is considered a god, Pharaoh's daughter would also have deity blood in her. So therefore, she would have to be honored in a special way in order to keep this peace agreement. So Solomon built her a house that would be magnified her position as a Pharaoh slash deity. This would be a kind of a representation of what Solomon's Jerusalem would look like. You would have the house of Pharaoh's daughter inside of the uh, area of Solomon's palace. You would have the house of the forest of Lebanon that was connected with the porch of pillars to the porch of the throne. Then you would have the temple grounds with the great courtyard and the temple itself. This was a magnificent marvel that people would come and look at these wonderful buildings, see how they were set up, and they would marvel and see how wonderful and wise Solomon was just based off of the architecture. This is a very big deal for something about 1000 BC. This is architectural marvels, and it showed again what great peace and prosperity Solomon had during his reign. We also know that Solomon built the kingdom. So he built defenses, he built buildings, but he also built up the kingdom of Israel. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 21, And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river under the land of the Philistines under the border of Egypt. They brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now Solomon ruled from the Euphrates River to the border of Egypt. This is a big deal. The Euphrates River is going to be nestled right up to Assyria and Babylon to the north. And he goes all the way down to Egypt. This is a big chunk of influence that he has on the known world nestled at next to these world empires. The Armenian states, Edom and Moab, all presented tribute to Solomon at Jerusalem. Tribute was something that was done in the ancient world that a lesser kingdom would give presents to a major kingdom to say, we're honoring how great you are. Please don't attack us. Please don't kill us. And people would line up to give treasures and presents to Solomon to honor his influence, to keep him happy so he wouldn't attack or destroy their lands. So this again showed the, the influence Solomon had. The Bible goes on, 1 Kings 9, 26. And King Solomon na made a navy of ships in Ezion Geber, which is beside Eloth, on the shore of the Red Sea and the land of Edom. Now Solomon <coughs> goes off and actually builds a navy port with ships in Ezion Geber. The Bible goes on and says, And Hiram, we talked about Hiram before, sent in the navy of his servants and shipmen that had knowledge of the sea with the servants of Solomon. So Hiram sent his servants to help Solomon to teach him how to be navy men. Remember, uh, Hiram comes from the land of Phoenicia, which was the traders of the Mediterranean Sea. They were experienced uh, maritime sailors, and they were able to teach Solomon to build ships and how to run those ships. In verse 28, And they came to Ophir, 
and fetched from thence gold 420 talents and brought it to the king of Solomon. By the way, a talent is equivalent to the weight of a full-grown man. 420 talents, that's a lot of gold that he brought to Solomon. Now Solomon developed the port of the city of Ezion-Geber on the Gulf of Aquaba, which is the right arm of the Red Sea, as a port which Israelite trade with Arabia and Africa could pass. In fact, I had a question the other day. Someone sent me an email asking a question, and they said, did uh, Solomon trade with India? He did. He traveled to India. In fact, it talks about, uh, in a different message, we'll talk about it, but he brought apes and peacocks and brought them into his palace. I mean, just because he was rich enough to have all of those things, he was able from this port to go ahead and make uh, trade with the rest of the world. Ezion Geber is here, right by the Red Sea, um, <laughs> the Gulf of Aquaba. And from this little point here, he was able to go ahead and influence the rest of the world with his navy. Now, something else that was significant there at this Navy port was copper mining and smelting in the uh, Araba near Ezion Geber was a thriving and important business. Copper or bronze was such an important thing of that time that there was tools made with it. Of course, we still use copper pi uh, pipes today. It was a very uh, important metal. And so Solomon was able to get the rights to this uh, copper mines to be able to mine it, smelt it, and then be able to use this as trade around the world to other civilizations who needed this copper. Now, we talked about Solomon. Let's make an application to ourselves. We know that there are certain things that are necessary in order for a civilization to thrive, but do you know that there are certain things that you could have inside of your life to help you to move from survival mode to where you are thriving in what God has given to you? Let's see if we could discover these same things that happens to be parallel with this is uh, what we talked about making a society, civilization thrive. Just like civilization, for us to be prosperous and grow in our lives, we need three things as well. First of all, we need a good source of spiritual food, and we get that through the Word of God. If someone wants to move from survival mode to thriving, you have to secure a good source of food. This would be the Word of God. The more the Word of God that you could get into you, the more you're going to prosper with God's blessing. Jesus said himself in Matthew 4, 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That we're not just supposed to survive with bread every day. We need something more in order for us to thrive. We need the word of God. This is why the greatest thing you could do on a daily basis is to be in the word of God for yourself. And the more the word of God that you could be placed in you in a regular basis, the more you're going to thrive and be able to build up and prosper spiritually. We must be in the word of God. When people 
are starving themselves from the word of God, they're going to find themselves in survival mode in their spiritual life. They're just going to one trial, to the next trial, to the next trial, just hoping to survive to the next day, to the next day, to the next day. That is no way to live. God desires for us to prosper and to thrive within our own lives. And the first way to do that is to be able to locate, have, and continue to to enjoy a steady source of food, which is the word of God. The second thing we need in our lives in order for us to thrive, to move beyond survival, is to have order and structure in our lives. We must have order and structure in our lives. What do we mean by this? It starts with salvation and knowing Christ. That for someone to have order and structure in their lives so they could thrive, they first of all need to have a personal knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. They must come to the place where they realize that they are a sinner. And because of their sin that they've offended a holy, righteous God. But that God loved them so much that Jesus died on the cross for them. And they must personally accept Jesus as their Savior. That's the starting point. That's where you begin is that you have to know Christ personally. Beyond that, the Christian life continues by learning to look unto Jesus and developing a faith life, looking unto him. The Bible says more about this in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. Our part is that we're to look unto Jesus. That's what faith is. That's how we define faith, looking unto Jesus. If we're going to have order in our in structure in our life, we live in a chaotic life. A lot of people say, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to find the next step. I don't know how to go on. I don't know what to do with, about my problems, my kids, my neighbors, whatever. It starts by knowing Christ is your savior so the Holy Spirit who is God can live inside you and be your guide. Then it starts by having faith, looking unto Jesus and allowing him to guide us, allowing him to direct our path. He's our source. The Bible goes on in Romans 10, 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. What is this meaning? That for our part, we don't need a bunch of rules and regulations. We need to look at the Lord. And as long as we look to the Lord, we will automatically do what we're supposed to do. We don't have to have a big checklist. Do this, don't do this. Now that's a freeing thing. Because the more rules you have to keep, the more stress that adds to it. God makes it simple. We learn to look at Jesus. And as we're looking at Jesus, we will do what's right. We have to learn how to keep our eyes on him and how to look at him and allow him to guide. There's a third element here that not only do we need to know Jesus Christ as our personal savior and learn to live the faith life looking unto Jesus, but we also understand something important on our life if we're going to thrive because of order is to understand that God guides us through biblical authority. God guides us through biblical authority. Remember, God is a God of decency and order. And he uses biblical authority in our life to help guide us. And when we learn to respond to biblical authority, we will watch our lives thrive and prosper because God knows what we need. You ask a child, 
Child, what do you want to eat? Ice cream. Well, what do you want to eat for supper? Ice cream. What do you want for breakfast? Ice cream. What about lunch? Cupcake. Now, any parent knows that you can't live off of that. You have to tell them no. But they don't understand that they can't live off of ice cream and cupcakes. They need something else. So what do you have? Biblical authority who now directs that child on what they're supposed to do and what they're supposed to have. There are times biblical authority says no. Biblical authority says, I don't care. You still have to go to school. Biblical authority says you do homework. Biblical, biblical authority is there to guide us. And when we learn to allow biblical authority to guide us, we find ourselves no longer at war, but we find ourselves starting to thrive and be blessed and prosper in our life because God is a God of decency and order and he directs us through biblical authority. You look at any society that has agreed to obey laws, you have a society that thrives. When you have a society that disregards all laws and all rules, it's no longer a society that is building, it is a society that is destroying. We must have biblical authority in our lives with decency and order for us to thrive, in order for us to have an environment to be able to thrive. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 17, obey them that have the rule over you. Now in that context, it's specifically talking about a pastor, but it does not do harm for those to apply it to those that have authority in our life. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Why? For they watch for your souls as they must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. That here is it's making an application to a pastor. A pastor can tell someone, please read your Bible. No. Well, why is the pastor telling him to do that? Does he just need more work? Does he just have nothing else to do but tell people to read their Bible? No. He's doing it because... The pastor watches for their soul and the pastor has to give an account to God. Imagine that responsibility that a pastor has to stand before God and give an account to God for what he has been teaching and how he's been teaching. That's a big deal. If a pastor says, well, I don't think the people like this message, so I'm not going to teach it. Well, he has to stand before God and give that account. When God said, listen, they needed that. They needed that instruction in their life. They needed that correction. That's part of that idea that God uses biblical authority who has to answer to God and uses that biblical authority to direct others so they can prosper and be blessed in their life. There's a third element that we need if we're going to prosper and thrive, move past survival mode. We have to start off with a good source of food that has to be obtained. That is the word of God. In order for society to thrive, they also have to have rules and order. That's going to develop an environment where they can thrive. The third thing is that we have to have peace in our life. That as long as the enemy is attacking, we can't build up and have the beautiful things. We're just in survival mode. And did you know that you can have peace in your life? The Bible says in Romans 5.1, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
You know what that means? That means that God is no longer angry with us. The Bible word for that is propitiation. That God is no longer angry at us because of, for our sins because he has paid our price for our sins on the cross of Calvary and we accepted that free gift of salvation. Now we can have peace with God that we're no longer fighting against God and God's no longer fighting against us. There's peace with us and God. That starts that environment where we can thrive and build and be prosperous in our life. The Bible goes on in the book of Philippians chapter 4. It says, be careful for nothing. That word be careful carries with it the idea, don't be anxious. Don't be worried. The Bible commands you, don't be worried for nothing. Don't be anxious for nothing. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. We have a command that we're supposed to take everything to God in prayer. That if you're worried about your husband, your spouse, the government, you talk to the Lord and give it to him and allow him to take that burden from you. The Bible goes on in verse 7, and the peace of God. So Romans chapter 5, it says we can have peace with God. Now it says in Philippians 4, 7, we can have the peace of God. The peace that God can grant to us. The peace of God which passeth all understanding. This means it's a peace that doesn't make sense. God can give us a peace where the rest of the world could be falling apart and we can still have peace. We need that if we're going to thrive and prosper and be built up in our life. The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Verse 9, those things which you have both learned and received and heard in me and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Romans 5.1, we have peace with God. Earlier in the book of Philippians chapter 4, we can have the peace of God. And now we find it all comes from the God of peace. We can have peace in our life. And if we have peace in our life, we can now have an environment to allow us to build and prosper in our life and thrive rather than just survive. So, as we're talking about Solomon and we're seeing him build a literal kingdom that's in his history, we understand that within our own lives, we could be built up in order for us to be built up so we're no longer just surviving from day to day. So we're no longer just trying to go from one crisis to another, just trying to survive one day after another. We can get to the place where we can prosper. We can move from survival to building. We can get to the place where God can put us in an environment where we can thrive, grow, and watch amazing things happen with our own lives. In order for that to happen, we have to have the same three things. We have to secure a good source of food, which is the word of God. We have to be maintaining a structure, an environment of peace, of order, and laws and rules, knowing that God directs us through biblical authority, that he guards us. And with that society of rules and order, now we no longer live in a chaotic state, 
but we could build up and thrive in our life. And then third, we could have peace with God and the peace of God, all coming from the God of peace as we learn to trust in him, to depend upon him, throw our cares upon him and be at the place where we're no longer worried what's going to happen here, what's going to happen here, how are we going to deal with this, how are we going to structure this, that God can give us peace. Imagine how much brain space and life space we can save if we're no longer worried about things in our life. When we're no longer worried about bills, children, government, spouses, we could trust God with all of those things. And now with our mind clear, we could start building up and having the peace, the prosperity, and the thriving that God wants to grant each and every one of us. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.